Hey guys, I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy from Hillbilly Horror Stories. I am Shane Waters from the podcast Out of the Shadows. And I'm Justin Rimmel from Mysterious Circumstances. Damn, Justin, did you hear how proper and serious Shane was? I guess when you're a guest on Nancy Grace and have 1,800 people listening to you at CrimeCon, you get real serious. Okay, Shane, I need you to tell the people why we're doing this commercial, but I need it just as serious as your introduction. You can see all three of our shows live in Indianapolis on Saturday, July 28th. All right, Justin, tell them what time to be there and where they can get tickets. Showtime is 7 p.m. to 10 p.m., and the cost is only $10. Seating is limited, so get your tickets now. Contact any of our shows on social media to buy tickets. And guys, your ticket gets you unlimited access to all the shows involved. Come out, take as many pictures as you want, and don't forget your free hugs. Hey folks, I'm Kevin. And I'm Kevin. Coming at you from the Dark Dark Windows Windows Podcast. So on this show we cover cryptids. Some dark history. Some strange places. And some true crime. And a little UFO from time to time. And pretty much anything in between. Exactly. And if you're listening to this where you're listening to it on Mysterious Circumstances, our new buddy Justin's show, keep on listening to that show. He's fantastic with his research. He's like Dan Carlin with a potty mouth, like I told Kevin I think that's kind of what sucked him into wanting to listen to it. Exactly. He's great. And we thank him for letting us uh, do this. Even just for talking to us on Facebook. Seems like a super nice guy. Yeah. So, And uh, if you want to find us, you can find us on iTunes. Google Play. Pretty much anywhere. There's a couple where you can't find it, but no big deal there. But yeah, come so, check us out if you want. Yeah. And keep listening to Mysterious Circumstances because I sure as shit will. I will too. So sit back and enjoy the show. I found him a loyal friend and good company. He was a dentist whom necessity had made a gambler, a gentleman whom disease had made a vagabond, a philosopher whom life had made a caustic wit, a long, lean, blonde fellow nearly dead with consumption, and at the same time the most skillful gambler and nerviest, speediest, Deadliest man with a six-gun I ever knew. Wyatt Earp speaking of Doc Holliday. Who was this man who could joke in the face of death? Who actually asked his opponent to shoot him? Doc Holliday was one whiskey-soaked, bullet-spitting son of thunder whose only saving grace was that he would soon be dead. All right, real quick before we get going, I have to thank some patrons. I got to thank Heather, Becky, Shelly, which Shelly still got to get a hold of me and we can work out our Skype call here. Speaking of Skype calls, um, Stephen, I got your episode pretty much ready. I'm going to get a hold of you here in the next week so we can set up a a time to uh, Skype and you can get your live episode and we can talk about it afterward. Also, I will be doing um, my part one Patreon episode. It will be on the Ketty murders. Uh, it's going to be a pretty good one. It's going to be a two-part episode. Uh, pretty in-depth look at all that stuff. Um, other than that, i got to thank Jonas from Sweden for, for his pledge. 
I appreciate it. He emailed me. We had a pretty kick-ass conversation. I like that dude quite a bit, man. Jonas, you're a good dude. Um, other than that, I suppose there's not really any news or anything. We're going to kick right into the episode here. All right, then. John Henry Holliday was born August 14, 1851 in Griffin, Georgia, He was born to a pretty well-to-do upper-middle-class family of English and Scottish descent. He was baptized March 21st, 1852 in First Presbyterian Church of Griffin. Uh, His older sister did die in infancy. Her name was Martha Eleonora, uh, which would have been the year before Doc was actually born. So when Doc was born, he ended up being the only child, and his family was very just extremely happy but doc was born with pretty good birth defect he was born with a cleft palate and a clap and a cleft lip so he actually had to be fed from an eyedropper in a little tiny cup his uncle john styles holiday ended up uh, doing the surgery to correct it because he was a doctor but he did suffer a little bit of a speech impediment you know, his southern drawl was said to be a little bit off, and his, you know, mother kind of really was very protective of him, because back then, you know, something like that was seen as, like, bad breeding, I guess you could say, but, I mean, he ended up doing, you know, pretty well for himself. He had a very notable family tree as well, uh, not to go off on a side tangent here, but I mean, his doctor, you know, uncle John Styles Holiday, he built a Greek revival house in 1855 in Fayette County, which is now a local museum. He had one relative, uh, also named John Holiday, who is the founder of Holiday, Utah. Uh, he just happened to be a Mormon, which, you know, to each their own, but he was part of the group that settled and ended up founding what is now known as San Bernardino, California as well. So that's a pretty interesting little fact. But um yeah, Doc ended up growing up pretty good. His mother would give him speech therapy. She was very protective of him, like I had mentioned. She was worried about society, the community, you know, thinking down on their family, you know, thinking down of John, and that was their only child. So, you know, she made it a point to work with him very, very hard. She taught him how to uh, play piano by the, you know, as soon as he could reach the keys, she was giving him piano lessons. So uh, young John Henry Holiday, who would later become known as Doc, was a very good piano player as well uh in his older years he was described as being five foot ten inches tall 140 pounds and contrary to popular belief he did not have dark hair he um he had ash blonde hair which is what Wyatt Earp described him as and Virgil Earp's wife who was uh Wyatt's brother um his wife Allie described him as having platinum blonde which was pretty cool little fact I didn't know uh, he did sport that very thick, famous mustache, and most uh, most historians agree that the reason that he did sport that mustache is because of, you know, to hide the scar from his cleft lip. So there was that um, little bit about his family. His father was Henry Burroughs Holiday. He was born in South Carolina. Now his dad literally probably had every fucking job under the sun. 
he was a businessman. He was a clerk of the county court. He was a pharmacist, a lawyer. He was a sycamore tree planner um, who had like a tree nursery as well. He was responsible for introducing the pecan industry to Georgia. Uh, he participated in the Cherokee Indian War in 1838. He was uh, promoted to a major in the Mexican War in 1846. When he did return from the Mexican War, though, uh, he actually adopted and brought home a young Mexi Mexican boy who had been orphaned by the war. Uh, his name was Francisco Hidalgo. Now, Francisco is credited with teaching Doc how to use guns and knives at a very young age. Like, for those of you who don't know, Doc Holliday was very good with a set of knives. So, I mean, that's a pretty interesting fact, too. Now, Francisco, you know, there's not much known about his history before Georgia or even after Georgia, for that matter. But he ended up dying of tuberculosis in 1866. And then his father, uh, after that, ended up serving in the Civil War in 1861. He was a major in the 27th Georgia Infantry. And then after that, he went on to be mayor of Valdosta, Georgia for two terms. Uh, I did read in a couple places that he had served several back-to-back -back terms. The only thing that I could find and that most historians can also find is just two terms, one from 1872 to 1873, the other one from 1876 to 1877. Uh, his mother was Alice Jane McKee. She was also born in South Carolina. She was, uh, you know, her family were from Scotland. Now, like I had mentioned previously, she was very, very protective. She was giving him speech therapy. She helped him, you know, learn how to talk. She was very, very adamant about that. And again, like I had previously mentioned, she had uh, taught him piano from the time he could reach the keys, which is seriously cool. They were all about being, you know, Southern gentlemen. But, you know, Doc was a pretty hot-tempered dude, man. I mean, you're going to find out here, you know, you know, we're going to separate the fact from fiction, don't get me wrong, but, you know, Doc had a little bit of a temper on him. Now, by 1864, the family is moving around a lot, mostly because of Sherman's march to the sea. Uh, while General Sherman is marching his troops through Georgia to the east, you know, the Holiday families trying to avoid being in the path and basically getting their ship burned down and pillaged because that's pretty much what Sherman's men did. I'm actually pretty knowledgeable about Sherman's March to the Sea because I personally have an ancestor. My great-great-great-grandfather uh, on my father's side uh, served in the Civil War and was with Sherman on his March to the Sea. So... You know, it's really interesting if you get looking into that kind of thing, but like I said, that's on a whole nother tangent. Uh, they ended up in Bemis, Georgia. I don't know if it's Bemis or Bemis, um, which is about seven miles outside of Valdosta. Now, they ended up settling in Valdosta on some land that was given to uh, Henry Holliday uh, for his part serving in the Civil War, and this would be in right around in 1864. Now, shortly after they get to Valdosta, uh, his mom, Alice, starts showing symptoms, and she starts uh, losing weight, starts having night fevers, a lot of coughing, 
and come to find out it ended up being a consumption also known as tuberculosis. For those of you I know I've talked uh, about consumption before and I know a lot of people outside of the U.S. aren't familiar with it. Consumption was tuberculosis and basically it was called consumption because you know originally they had thought that it consumed you know the body from within. Here's a fact for you. One out of every five deaths in the USA from the year 1800 to 1870 was because of tuberculosis. Now, some of the stages, there were three stages. The one stage, the first one was you kind of had like a dry cough. You know, you had a pain in the chest and shoulders and you would lose a little bit of weight. Uh, the second stage was coughing up mucus and sometimes blood. And the third stage was you would literally just be wrecked by this disease. I mean, you would get skeleton skinny and it seriously was a slow and very painful death. Now, you know, she ended up dying on September 16th, 1866. But the whole two years that she's dying of this, John is taking care of her. You know, that's a hell of a thing for a 13, 14, 15 year old boy to go through. He was literally an only child. His mother took care of him. You know, it's just really, really sad to be perfectly honest with you. Now, while, you know, his mom is dying and even shortly after her death, he did have a lot of family around. He had, you know, a huge family. Like I had said, they were very notable. They were, most of them were within about the 50 mile range. Um, one place he would often go is his Uncle John's house, his Uncle John Styles Holiday. Now, while he was over there, there was a woman named Sophie Walton. Uh, she was a young mulatto woman. She was the retainer of the household. I'm not gonna lie to you. Retainer of the household is pretty much a fancy word for a fucking slave. Alright, so... She's over there, and she would always look out, you know, watch the kids, play with them, and stuff like that. And she is credited with being the person who taught Doc how to play cards. She taught a lot of games, but Sophie taught young John and all of his cousins this game called Skinning. Now, the original rules of this card game, Skinning, were pretty much adapted by Pharaoh. As you go to listen on, you know, you'll find, come to find out that... Pharaoh is a very prominent card game later on in Doc's life. Like I had mentioned, on September 16th, 1866, when Doc was 15, his mom does die. When this happens, Doc just starts, he throws himself into school. He needs something to do to take his mind off. You know, that, that he took care of her for two years while she was dying. He watched her die. So he starts going to school, starts, uh, you know, doing that because before he was homeschooled by his mom. But on December 18th, just a few months after his mom dies, uh, his dad Henry remarries a woman named Rachel Martin. She was the daughter of a judge who was the neighbor. Uh, she was very young. She was only a few years older than Doc. Now this pissed Doc off and it could have possibly strained the relationship between him and his father going forward. Um, it was tradition to have like a one year grieving period, but old, uh, you know, old Henry was, he was right back, right back in the saddle. He didn't really waste any time, you know, and like I said, like Doc saw this as like disrespect to his mom. So it really strained their relationship. So now he even 
just does anything to try to get away from the house as much as he can. And he starts going to school at a place called the Valdosta Institute. And what he learned there were, you know, subjects like rhetoric, grammar, history, math. Uh, Doc was said to be a very, very good at math. He was very good with numbers. But he also learned languages. He could speak Latin, French, and ancient Greek. Um, all his peers said he was an extremely bright guy, and he, he excelled at school. He was super smart. Um, now, in 1870, when Doc was 19, he goes to the dental school in uh, Philadelphia. So on March 1st, 1872, Doc, at the age of 20, becomes a doctor of dental surgery. And he actually wrote his thesis on diseases of the teeth. And he gets a degree from the Pennsylvania College of Dental Surgery, which um, is currently known as, you know, the University of Pennsylvania uh, School of Dental Medicine. It's like a little department of that. Now, he actually graduated five months before his 21st birthday. So the school held his degree. You weren't allowed to practice dentistry until you were 21. So like I had said, Doc was a pretty smart guy. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Not going to lie. Uh, probably didn't take much to be a dentist back in the mid to late 1800s, but still I'm not going to take anything away from him because literally everybody that had anything to say about him being in school said he was exceptionally bright. Um, so what he's doing while he's waiting for his degree is he goes to St. Louis, Missouri, and he becomes an assistant for a classmate that he had by the name of a. Jameson Futchess Jr. I don't know if his last name is Futchess or Fuchs. It's F-U-C-H-E-S. But, you know, obviously there's no pronunciations on that. So I'll just say it all different ways so I don't fuck anybody over on their name, you know. So the end of July 1872, he ends up going to Atlanta. And he joins the dental practice of Arthur C. Ford. And he's pretty much waiting until he turns 21 uh, so he can open up his own practice. And he's what he's doing is he's waiting and he's trying to g gain clientele while working with Arthur Ford. He's also living with his uncle and his family uh, right there. So, you know, it's kind of a nice little situation he's got. Now, Arthur C. Ford ends up going to a meeting out of town and reports that Doc is going to sub in his place. In the Atlanta Constitution on July 26, 1872, he pretty much ran the following thing, quote, I hereby inform my patients that I have to attend the session of the Southern Dental Association in Richmond, Virginia, and will be absent until about the middle of August, during which time Dr. John H. Holliday will fill my place in my office Office 26, Whitehall Street, Arthur C. Ford, DDA, end quote. All right, now around this time, there are a couple significant events that happen, one of which, unfortunately, I have to report, not much unlike Jesse James. Um, Doc Holliday was more than likely a cousin fucker as well. <laughs> you know, this wasn't uncommon, it was kind of acceptable in the, you know, 19th century. You know, it is what it is. It's kind of fucked up, but, you know, it's it's whatever. Like, it, it happened because, you know, to keep, you know, property within the family and money within the family and shit like that. I mean, look at royalty in Europe. I mean, they were literally, like, 
you know, fucking their own cousins all the time and shit. So, you know, I, it's, it's whatever. All right. But he supposedly had a little bit of a romance with, in his teens with his cousin, uh, Martha Ann Holiday. She was known as Maddie. She was the daughter of his uncle, uh, Robert Kennedy Holiday. Now, apparently this little romance sparks up again. Now, the family, uh, even today, will acknowledge that there was more than likely some sort of romance there. You know, some historians will argue that it was just a really good friendship. Um, I'm kind of going to go with the family on that one, because if the family's going to, going to go ahead and admit this, it's probably fucking true, alright? So... They ended up having, like, a pretty good love affair, you know, from all my understanding. You know, I'm kind of creeped out saying that. But a little bit about Maddie. You know, after Doc ends up leaving, which we'll get to here in a minute, she uh, she joined a convent. She joined the Order of the Sisters of Mercy. She became Sister Mary Melanie. little cool thing about her was she was the inspiration for Miss Melanie and Gone with the Wind. Philip Fitzgerald, okay, which was an uncle-in-law of Robert Kennedy Holiday, he was the great-grandfather of Margaret Mitchell, who wrote Gone with the Wind. Of the eight children born to Robert Kennedy Holiday and his wife, one was Martha Ann Maddie Holiday, which was Sister Mary Melanie. So, Miss Melanie ties in, but yeah, that's kind of a cool little fact. You know, their romance was, uh, it was, it was not looked at very highly in their family because Maddie was Catholic and one of the rules of, I shit you not, I can't even make this up. One of the rules of the Catholic families at this time was that you could not marry in the first degree. And what that meant was you can't marry a first cousin. Uh, you can't, you know, have kids with a first cousin. You were allowed to marry and have kids in the second and third degree, which was, which meant, you know, you could, you can fuck all the second and third cousins you want. Like, that's no big deal. But not a first cousin. Like, that's strictly forbidden. So, their family was very, very against their relationship. And it did strain it, supposedly, from, from all I understood. Now, I will say this. Doc would always speak so highly of Maddie. Like, I know it's fucked up that, you know, it's his first cousin, but this was truly the woman that he loved, and he would always love until the day he died. She ended up dying in 1939 in the convent, and they kept correspondence letters, like, they they corresponded, like, the entire life up until his death. As a matter of fact, like when he died, um, she was the person that they contacted to inform the rest of the family. And when she ended up dying, she had previously destroyed like a lot of the letters, um, after Doc died because she didn't want to, um, ruin his reputation or make the world think differently of him because he did have a reputation by the time he died. He had a crazy ass reputation as you're going to come to find out. But, you know, after Maddie ended up dying, uh, her younger sister actually got the rest of the letters and burned those too. She burned everything. Um, she did keep the personal effects because after Doc died, you know, 
she, Maddie was the one who got sent all his personal effects, um, along with the other half of the correspondence letters. So when Maddie ended up dying, her younger sister literally destroyed all the fucking letters. And it is stated by family even today that the reason she did that was because if the world had read those letters, they would have known a different Doc Holiday. So it is really interesting to know, like, what, what was in those letters, you know what I mean? But, you know, that's, you know, that's how it goes sometimes. That's history, you know? It's all speculation. Now, there is another incident that happens around this area that is still kind of debated. Um, I like to believe the family's version of this, and not just because it's the better version, because it's the one that makes more sense. Basically, it's referred to as the swimming hole incident. Now, one version of the story goes, and this version comes from Bat Masterson, okay? Now, Bat Masterson was a famous lawman, just like Wyatt Earp. Um, Bat Masterson wrote, you know, a bunch of, bunch of articles, did interviews, you know, wrote a bunch of memoirs in 1907, um, where he talks about Doc Holliday, and he talks about this incident, but it should be known that Bat Masterson was not a big fan of Doc Holliday. He pretty much tolerated him because... He was best friends with Wyatt Earp, and we'll get to that story of how that all happened here in a little bit, too, but he's not a big fan. He talks very badly about Doc Holliday a lot, so it's hard to take into consideration, you know, the fact that somebody who has so much contempt for you, you know, writing about you, yeah, they're probably going to stretch the truth. I mean, Bat Masterson was known for stretching the truth anyway about himself, let alone Doc Holliday, so, his version of the story is that Doc had told him, okay, and Doc was known to embellish. Not gonna lie, Doc was known to embellish. But, he told him that, you know, right around this time period, him and some buddies went down to their favorite swimming hole, and uh, there was a group of African Americans there swimming in their spot. Well... Doc Holliday confronted him and said, hey, you know, why don't you guys get the hell out of here, you know, and then one of them snapped back and said, you know, this river's wide enough, why don't you go somewhere else? Now, you got to remember, you know, this is after the Civil War, there's still a lot of tension right there, um, so Doc Holliday says, I'm going to get my gun, you guys better be gone when I get back, so he goes, comes back, double-barreled shotgun, and supposedly he had, he kind of got them to where they were in a group together and fired off rounds out of the double barreled, killing anywhere from one to three of them. Um, this unfortunately more than likely did not happen. The actual story, uh, from family members and also other contemporaries, um, is that he was down there with his uncle and they were swimming and they did have, you know, a little situation with some African Americans down there swimming in their spot. So his uncle hands him an 1851 Colt revolver, which ended up being a gun that, uh, Doc Holliday ended up keeping. Uh, and he, his uncle told him, you know, fire above their heads, just scare them. And when he did that, you know, supposedly one of them shot back. Uh, but they did leave, and then that was the end of the situation. 
you know, it's hard telling. There were no newspaper accounts of this ever even happening, even if he would have killed somebody. I'm not saying that because it was after the Civil War, because they were African Americans, that it wouldn't have been reported on. But, you know, it's hard telling what happened right there. Personally, I believe the family side of the story, just because it's more specific, it makes more sense. And... And that 1851 Colt revolver is something that Doc did end up carrying until about, about the late 1870s. That was his gun of choice, so. Now, by 1873, Doc does have a successful practice. Uh, only for a couple months, Doc finds out that he has tuberculosis. He starts showing the symptoms. He more than likely got it from his mom when he was taking care of her when she was dying. Uh, he goes and gets several opinions. And all of them said the same exact thing. At the age of 22 years old, John Henry Holiday is given no more than six months to live. Now they said if he goes and he moves to a drier climate, he could possibly extend his life by about two years max. So in September in 1873, Doc at the age of 22 leaves for Dallas. Now, this is when Maddie Holiday goes and joins the convent. Some people say, you know, that she would never love another man, so she decides to never, you know, engage with another man. Some other contemporaries think that uh, her family was ashamed of the affair that she had with her first cousin, so they forced her into the convent. Um, I personally don't believe that because even though this was the 1800s, you were still pretty much allowed to make your own decisions in your early 20s. And I mean, don't get me wrong, they came from a prominent family who probably did tell their kids what to do and they followed suit. But anyway, look at it. This is when Maddie joins a convent and Doc leaves for Dallas. And the reason he goes to Dallas is because that was literally, at this time, the end of the fucking railroad uh, to the south. And Dallas was like the last civilized part of the American West before you start getting into like the, you know, untamed frontier part of it. So he heads there. He opens up a dental practice with a friend of his dad's named uh, John A. Seeger. Now, Doc Holliday who's actually not known as Doc until about 1878, but um, John Henry Holiday, he was a fucking really good dentist, man. Like, he won awards for dental work uh, at the annual fair of the North Texas Agricultural, Mechanical, and Bloodstock Association. At the Dallas County Fair, he won prizes for um, best set of artificial teeth and dental wear and also an award for best gold teeth. Like, can you imagine, like, Doc Holliday's out there making gold grills, man. Like, I don't know why, but I think that's just pretty cool. He also won an award for uh, Best Teeth in Vulcanized Rubber, which isn't at all what it sounds like. Um, now, the prizes for these were uh, a nice plate and $5 for each display, which, 1873, man, that what really wasn't that bad. But moving forward on... March 2nd, 1874, the Dallas Daily Commercial reported, quote, Upon mutual consent, the firm of Seeger and Holiday has dissolved. J.H. Holiday will be responsible for the two debts against the firm. 
J.A. Seeger will remain at the old office over Cochran's Drug Store, Elm Street. J.H. Holiday's office is over the Dallas County Bank, corner of Main and Lamar Street, end quote. Now, pretty much what was going on was their business started falling through, like he was losing a lot of clientele. Uh, he was coughing at the wrong times because he, he had just found out he had tuberculosis, not you know, long before this, you know, he'd be doing fillings and extractions and be coughing on people. So like his, you know, business gradually declined because people were fucking freaked out. They didn't want to get consumption or TB. So he started losing, you know, a lot of his clientele. It is around this time that Doc starts turning to gambling. Um, he starts going into the nightlife. Now, since he was taught that card game when he was a kid, um, the popular game at the time was Pharaoh. So he's going around gambling and he's really good with numbers because he was very good at math and he's very good at shuffling cards and, and just card games and gambling in general. So he starts leaning towards this, towards his, you know, for his main means of support to support himself because he has really nothing else. Now, because of this, he also starts honing his skills with, with the knives and the guns, he had to protect himself as a gambler in the West. Not only because he was sick, but he was also small and weak. You know, he wasn't a very big dude. He was, you know, 5'10", 130 pounds at about this time. And, you know, the West was a rough place for a guy who leaned on gambling as a profession. So he starts getting really, really efficient with, with the guns and knives. And his pistol of choice... At this time was a nickel-plated Colt revolver, double-action self-cocker, and it was a 38 caliber Lightning with a three and a half inch barrel. He would later go on to have a uh, 41 caliber uh, Thunderer uh, made by Colt as well. But the reason that he chose the Lightning uh, with a three and a half inch barrel and 38 caliber was because it was a lighter pistol. It had a shorter belt. It had a shorter barrel. It had a smaller grip. It was a lot more easy to maneuver for him, for a guy with a smaller frame who was kind of weak. So it just kind of fit really, really perfect. Now, the first time Doc runs into a little bit of trouble was in late 1874. He is indicted with 12 others on gambling charges. But not only that, on January 2nd, 1875, not long after the indictment for gambling charges, Holiday and a local um, saloon keeper in the area named Champagne Charlie Austin, they had a little bit of a disagreement over a card game. Uh, at the time, Doc was living in Denison, Texas. Uh, the Dallas newspaper, when they reported it, they really didn't think it was that big of a deal. But how it went down was both men pulled their pistols. There was a lot of shots fired. Not one struck anybody. I mean, there's lots of shots fired. Um, Doc could actually shoot extremely fast because that pistol that I had mentioned was being a self-cocker. You didn't have to cock it, you know, in order to fire a shot, which was, you know, most of the pistols in the Wild West. You could just pull the trigger repeatedly and it would just go off, you know, just bam, 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 bam. Super fast. So there's all these shots fired. Nobody got shot. Uh, not one person was wounded. Both people were arrested, 
Uh, Doc is brought up on shooting charges and he is eventually found not guilty of shooting with intent to kill by a jury, but he was found guilty and fined in the gambling charges. Now, not too long after that, um, right in about spring of 1875, Holiday supposedly shot and killed a prominent citizen uh, and had to flee uh, back to Dallas. Now, there's no newspaper accounts of this ever happening. There's no death records. There's no court records. There's absolutely nothing. So a lot of people believe that this did not happen. As you're going to come to find out, Doc Holliday, uh, in order to kind of protect himself, he would tell a lot of tall tales. He would, his reputation would hit a town before he did. And people did not fuck with him. Like, you're going to come to find out, like, when people found out that his name was Doc Holliday, they did not want anything to do with him. All he had to do was say his name, and that was it. And he did that as a means of protection, not to make himself sound so much better, but he did it because he knew he was weaker than most people. Like, he had to do something. This was his only means of living was gambling. So, you know, when he's in these... You know, at these gaming tables with all these, you know, big ass dudes who literally, you know, kill people at the drop of a hat, Doc Holliday had to have something. So he had a reputation. Now, in June 1875, uh, he does make it to Fort Griffin, Texas. Holliday was indicted by a grand jury for gaming in a saloon. And there was a warrant issued for his arrest. He hurries up and skips town. That's about the last we hear of him until sometime in 1876. He stops in Jacksboro, Texas. Um, by this time, he had gained a reputation as being known as the Deadly Dentist. And that was partly because of his own stories and rumors and stuff like that that he was spreading about himself. Um, now, in Jacksboro, he supposedly kind of enhanced that reputation with three supposed gunfights. His tally at this point in time, you know, which is, you know, accepted by a lot of people was, you know, one gambler dead, two gamblers wounded, and one sixth cavalryman dead. Um, there are no newspaper accounts, court records, no army records that mention any kind of this shit. But Bat Masterson actually does report at one point in time later on that Holiday was in Jacksboro, South Carolina. Um, and he got into a gunfight with a, with an unnamed soldier and Holiday supposedly shot and killed him. Oddly enough, there was a historian named Gary L. Roberts that did find a record uh, for a guy who was pr known as Private Robert Smith who had been shot and killed by an unknown assailant. But Holiday was never linked to the death. So that's pretty, you know, that's give or take. You know, I'm not sure how I feel about that being fact, but it's pretty interesting that this, uh, that this historian did track that info down. Now, still in 1876, uh, he goes to Denver, Colorado. Uh, he uses the alias Tom Mackey at this point, and that's kind of a spin on his mother's maiden name is McKee. You know, that, that brings up a lot of questions. If he was just running away from gambling charges, why would he have to change his name? You know, so that does lend a little bit of credit to the fact that he possibly did kill 
like at least one or two people around that time beforehand because nobody's going to change their name to escape gambling charges. It was literally a fine, you know, and you're going to come to find out Doc Holliday gets arrested and fined for gambling a lot. So, you know, there's that. But uh, he ends up getting a job as a faro dealer at uh, John A. Babb's Theater Comique or Comicue. It's spelled C-O-M-I-Q-U-E. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Right around this time, too, he supposedly gets into a knife fight and kills a guy named Bud Ryan. There's two versions. Either he gets in a knife fight and um, basically just cuts up Bud's face and neck real bad, scarring him for life. Another story says that he got into a knife fight with Bud Ryan and killed him. You know, there are no records for this. Um, Karen Holiday Tanner. This is one book that I leaned on a lot for research. She wrote a book called Doc Holiday, A Family Affair, I believe is what it's called. She goes on to say, you know, that event never happened, but the, it was fabricated by a journalist who wrote for the Denver Republican after Doc's death. Uh, the false story appeared around Christmas of the year of Doc's death. Karen Holiday Tanner also notes, again, that Bat Masterson would always readily perpetuate and fabricate stories uh, to make Doc, you know, look more negative, more look more like a bad person. And he did this quite often. But in the article in the Denver Republican of June 22nd, 1887, um, it does tell of a young kid named Ryan um, who slashed the neck of a guy named Jack Brogan in a saloon called Moses's Home. Um, so there was a slashing in Denver at this point in time, but it was much later on after Doc had died. And um, Ryan was actually the slasher, and Holiday supposedly wasn't even involved or present at the time. So there is that information. On uh, February 5th, 1876, after gold is discovered in Wyoming, uh, Doc heads there. He settles in Cheyenne. Um, he starts dealing faro in a place called Bella Union Saloon, which is owned by a guy named Thomas Miller. Now, after more gold is discovered in the Deadwood, uh, which is part of the Dakota Territory at this time, he ends up moving that saloon to Deadwood. Doc goes with him, and he pretty much just spends the winter playing poker and dealing faro. Um, it is stated that Wyatt Earp is in Deadwood at this same time, but this is not where they actually cross paths and meet yet. Now, going on from there, in early 1877, uh, Doc goes back to Cheyenne, uh, there is legends out there that say he killed three unidentified men before ending his visit. Uh, no evidence that he killed anyone in Wyoming. Uh, then he goes back to Denver, goes back to Kansas to visit an, an aunt of his. Uh, then he goes back to Denison, Texas, and then back to Breckenridge, Texas. And this is all in about the span of about six months or so. The next time we see him pop up is on July 4th, 1877 in Breckenridge. He gets into a fight with a guy named Henry Kahn over a card game. And Doc was known to carry around a walking stick because, you know, he's kind of frail and weak at times. So apparently because of this card game and this argument, Doc uses his walking stick to beat 
the ever-living shit out of this guy named Henry Kahn. I mean, they, he severely beat him. Both of them were arrested and fined for gambling, as irony would have it. The end of the fight, that wasn't really it. Uh, later that day, Henry Kahn shows back up and shoots Doc and seriously injures him. Um, as a matter of fact, in the July 7th Dallas Weekly Herald newspaper, they reported him as being dead. So Doc Holliday actually, you know, got to read an article about himself being dead. So that's pretty interesting. But uh, one of his cousins by the name of George Henry Holliday actually moved uh, down there from Georgia to help him recover. Uh, once he did recover fully, he goes to Fort Griffin, Texas and starts dealing cards uh, at a saloon by a guy named John Shancy. Now, this is where he meets big-nosed Kate who is a dance hall girl and occasional prostitute. And uh, for all you sensitives out there who think prostitute is a derogatory term, um, I could be historically accurate right now and refer to her as a whore, like I read in every single historical reference I read about her. But uh, I'm actually being quite generous right now. But she was an occasional prostitute. She was only occasional prostitute because... She viewed herself as uh, more of an independent woman. She didn't want to belong to like a house brothel. She didn't really want to pimp. And she didn't want to get married and belong to any man. So she just kind of did her own shit. Uh, a little bit about her was she was christened Mary Catherine Heroni, also known as Kate Fisher, also known as Kate Elder. Um, she was the daughter of a Hungarian doctor. She actually ran away from home when she was 16 um, because she was escaping uh, sexual abuse from an unnamed male relative. You know, people who wanted to talk down about Kate, they did refer to her as Big Nose Kate. She did have like a Roman nose or a hook nose, um, if you know what those are. Um, but it wasn't really particularly large or prominent by really any standards. Um, basically, how it all worked out, this was, you know, the feature that did earn her the name. But Allie Earp, who was the wife of Virgil Earp, who was Wyatt's um, brother, uh, claimed that, you know, this is why they called her Big Nosed Kate. Now, Kate herself never used that name. Doc never called her that. Um, basically, the Earp family called her that um, because her and the Earp family did not get along very well. So, you know, there's that. There's actually a lot of argument about whether or not she even had uh, a big nose or not and whether or not she um, was another woman who was referred to as Big Nose Kate because she was always sticking her nose into other people's business. Because pretty much there's two separate pictures who have been associated with Big Nose Kate. People get the two pictures confused. One of them's right, one of them's wrong. But I'm going to lean more towards the Earp family, you know, just because they really don't have anything to gain or lose from this. And they probably know better than anybody else because they actually knew her. So um, she was described as being tough, stubborn, and fearless. She was actually very educated. She was a very smart woman. And like I had said, she chose to be a prostitute because she liked her independence. And she is the only woman who Doc Holliday is known to have had a relationship. I mean, she was pretty much his common-law wife. 
Um, she was referred to, they actually, when they would check into boarding houses, they would be, you know, they would sign in as Mr. and Mrs. Doc Holliday, so, or, or John Henry Holiday. So, you know, I mean, they, don't get me wrong, they had some fights. They had a very tumultuous relationship, but, you know, the simple fact of the matter is Doc was even quoted as saying, you know, that she was his intellectual equal because she was so well educated and Doc was super educated as well. So I thought that was pretty cool. All right, now moving forward to about October of 1877. Outlaw Dirty Dave Rudabaugh, who got the nickname Dirty Dave because he refused to bathe. Uh, he robs a Santa Fe Railroad construction camp and he was fleeing south. A guy named Wyatt Earp, who was given a temporary commission um, as Deputy U.S. Marshal, left Dodge City following Rudabaugh over 400 miles, which was um, 640 kilometers, and he ends up tracking him all the way to Fort Griffin. So... Erp goes into a place called the Beehive Saloon, which is the largest in town, and it's owned by John Chansey. So, John Chansey and Erp had been friends since they were younger. They had been friends a long time. Um, and he goes in and asks Chansey, you know, he's like, hey, like, I'm tracked this guy to here. Have you seen him? You know, I need info on him. I'm tracking him. Um, and Chansey tells Wyatt Erp that, uh, you know, Dave Rudabaugh had passed through town earlier in the week and that he, he did not know where he was headed. And Shancy suggested that he ask this gambler named John Henry Holiday. Holiday had uh, played cards with Rudabaugh uh, earlier in the week. And uh, Wyatt was pretty skeptical about talking to Doc Holiday. It was very well known that Doc hated lawmen. So, you know, he finds him later that evening at Shancy's, and he was actually surprised at Doc's willingness to talk to him. And Doc was actually quoted as saying about Dirty Dave Rudabaugh, quote, Dirty Dave is an ignorant scoundrel. I disapprove of his very existence. I considered ending it myself on several occasions, but self-control got the better of me, end quote. And the uh, holiday pretty much tells Wyatt Earp that Rudabaugh was more than likely headed back to Kansas. Now, this is the very first time that Doc and Wyatt Earp do meet. Um, their relationship at this point is more of a relationship of necessity. Uh, you know, they're not really friends. Doc Holiday hated Dirty Dave Rudabaugh a little bit more than Lawmen, so, you know, Wyatt Earp was cool with the information. So while in Fort Griffin, um, Holiday's killer legend also has him claiming another victim at about this time. Uh, the story goes that while playing poker, a guy named Ed Bailey kept sifting through the discards, which was highly illegal in the, in the game of Pharaoh. Holiday warned him a couple times, but Bailey pretty much ignored him, kept doing it just to piss him off. So the next time Bailey did it, Holiday just racked up the pot which was basically just put his cards down without showing his hand, scooped up all the money without saying a word, which was pretty much the rules. That's how it worked if somebody started looking at the uh, the discarded cards. So Bailey pulls out a revolver, but Holiday uh, whipped out his knife and basically just went to work, slashed him across the stomach, you know, blood spills out everywhere. You know, Bailey falls across the table, didn't even get a shot off, and... 
Doc didn't run because it was self-defense, and he knew that. Now, the dead gambler apparently had some friends. And when when Holiday was arrested, he was arrested, he was put in jail, a lynch mob begins to form. Now, while Holiday's in jail, the mob is outside... And they're, you know, doing their thing, talking about what's going to happen. What happens is Big Nose Kate supposedly sets fire to a barn or a shed uh, and holding a gun to a jailer. Uh, The burning building pretty much distracted all the mob. Then Kate slipped into the jail, pulls out two six shooters, points them at the jailer. She already had horses waiting outside and her and Doc Holliday rode off to Dodge City, Kansas and got, got the fuck out of town. Now, this is a really, really cool story, but it's probably only partly true. The newspaper, there, there's no newspaper articles or court records of any of this shit ever happening, except for the fact that Holiday had been arrested for illegal gaming again, uh, not for killing a guy named Ed Bailey, and he was lo- he wasn't locked in a jail. The town didn't even have a jail at the time. He was under like a form of house arrest. He was being held in a hotel room under guard. Now Kate really did set fire to a shed behind the hotel as a diversion and did free dock. So that part is true, which is. That's a ride-or-die chick right there, man. That is awesome. So they literally got got out of town. They go to Dodge City. Um, While in Dodge City, they register at Deacon Cox's Boarding House as Dr. and Mrs. John H. Holliday. Um, And there just happens to be no dentist in town. So Doc kind of hangs out the sign, and he's like, you know, in 1878, he puts out an ad in the paper, and it just says dentistry. John H. Holliday, dentist, very respectfully offers his professional services to the citizens of Dodge City and surrounding county during the summer. Office at room number 24, Dodge House. Where satisfaction is not given, money will be refunded. So he's actually trying to start open another business. You know, he's trying to kind of go straight, make a legitimate living. You know, he's pretty much got you know, Kate under his name, so they're trying to be, like, respect respectable citizens, even though he's already got this crazy-ass reputation anyway. So, on September 24th, 1878. Now, this is according to a book called I Married Wider by a guy named Glenn Boyer. Um, what happened was, early in 1878, Earp had run off a couple cowboys by the name of Toby Driscoll and Ed Morrison out of w- Wichita, Kansas. Now, on September 24th, 1878, the two cowboys, um, they had supposedly a couple dozen men with them. They ride into Dodge, and uh, they shot up the town. They're galloping up and down Front Street, and they walk into the Long Branch Saloon. They vandalized the place. They started harassing a bunch of customers. So Wyatt Earp hears the commotion. He bursts through the front door. And, you know, before he could react, there's pretty much just, you know, like 20 cowboys standing there pointing their guns at him. You know, that's one version. Another version is there were only three to five cowboys. But either way, he was outnumbered in both versions of the story. Doc Holliday was sitting in the back room playing cards, um, and he starts hearing the commotion going on, and he had recognized, you know, Wyatt Earp from when they had met before. 
So what he does is he creeps up behind the gang's leader, which was Ed Morrison, and he pulls out his pistol, puts it to Morrison's head, tells him to disarm. He tells all the guys to disarm. Now supposedly one of the men decided to try to be a quick trigger, pulls out a gun, Doc shot him without a hesitation, and pretty much saved Wyatt Earp's life. You know, there's no technical account of any such confrontation being reported uh, by any kind of Dodge City newspapers. So it's it's hard telling if that part of the story happened. There's another little side story that says, you know, Wyatt was arresting three cowboys, uh, one of whom was trying to pull an out-of-sight pistol, one that was hidden like behind him in his, uh, in his belt. And Holiday jumped up. Uh, from a nearby poker table and pretty much cocked the pistol, put it to his head, and uh, the dude dropped his pistol and either way, you know, saved Wyatt's life. Now, either either way, you know, that happened, we're not 100% sure, but whatever did happen, he did draw his pistol and fended off any kind of attackers that Wyatt would have had, and... You know, this incident may have been why Earp, you know, would always later praise Doc's speed and adeptness with a gun. Um, you know, he, he would always say, he's like, dude, that guy is the fastest draw, man. Like, he, he's good with a pistol. And I don't think somebody like Wyatt Earp would say that just to say that because of his own reputation. But either way you look at it, um, Wyatt Earp credited Holiday with saving his life that day. Um, and that cemented their friendship right there forever. In OK Corral Inquest in 1881, Wyatt Earp actually said, um, quote, I am a friend of Doc Holliday because when I was a city marshal of Dodge City, Kansas, he came to my rescue and saved my life when I was surrounded by desperados. So, I mean, it's, it's a definite fact that Doc Holliday did, did save Wyatt Earp's life. Um, and because of their friendship, Doc starts associating himself, uh, with these lawmen, you know, Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson. And he, he actually helps them on several occasions. And he helps them and they help Doc, you know, so they help him get out of trouble every now and then. It's kind of a fair thing. So it's not totally out of the realm of possibilities to dismiss you know, that Doc Holliday was this good with a pistol. Right around this time as well, Big Nose Kate, um, she kind of starts getting bored, uh, unfortunately. She starts going back to the saloons and dancing. Doc was pretty pissed off about this um, because she's still carrying around the name Mrs. John Holliday, and she's out here, you know, trying to be a showgirl, and... You know, it kind of kind of hurt him. You know, it hurt his pride a little bit. Uh, he he really didn't want to practice dentistry anymore. You know, so like he's at a little bit of a turning point. You know, so he took down you know his dental chair. He did he didn't do that anymore. Kate ended up leaving him. She took off for parts unknown. Nobody knows where she went for a while. And Doc himself actually took off too. He ended up going for. Uh, Leadville, which was in the Colorado Territory at the time. Now, here's a couple more stories. Uh, on his way to Colorado Territory, Holiday is said to have become involved in an argument with two gamblers, uh, an argument that he won by killing both men. 
Once in Trinidad, Colorado Territory, he supposedly got into a gunfight with another gunman named Kid Colton. You know, the story has Doc shooting Colton just straight up dead, you know, so he's got another notch on his gun. But again, there's no newspaper account or court records, you know, nobody, you know, else mentioned the these two incidents. You know, not to argue that fact, because that is a good fact, because I, I do work on facts, I work on documented evidence, but again, we have to think, this is the late 19th century in the West, if two men are out in the middle of nowhere and one shoots another one, there's no newspaper that's going to report it, there's no court document that's ever going to show it, dude's going to lay out there dead and he's going to decompose and nobody's ever going to know except for the other guy, so I absolutely fucking hate it when they discredit a lot of these stories based on that phrase right there because they do that shit all the time they always say there's no court court documents you know there's no newspaper articles yeah that's cool but you know when you're on the side of a fucking mountain there's not a newspaper office there so you know you as a listener just kind of got to keep that in mind there's there's two ways to think about that while Doc is leaving Colorado, he's on his way to Las Vegas, a New Mexico territory in 1879. Um, Holiday, which, you know, according to legend, killed some more people. Um, he was at a railroad construction camp called Otero. Um, Doc is said to have killed another person who pretty much he just left out there to decompose. Like I said... All historians say there's no record, no evidence whatsoever of such an event. It could have happened, it could not have happened. We don't know. There's only one person who knows whether or not it happened. So a little bit before Christmas in 1878, Holiday and uh, Big Nose Kate, they are back together. Um, they both arrive in Las Vegas, New Mexico. Uh, there are supposedly 22 hot springs near the town um, that were said to have favored individuals with tuberculosis. Um, they had alleged healing properties, so a lot of people with tuberculosis would go there. They would bathe in the hot springs, and it was supposed, supposedly supposed to extend their lives. You know, as we know now, it was almost exactly the opposite. Probably didn't help them too much. But there is another alleged victim of Doc Holliday in Las Vegas at this time. Uh, his name is Charlie White. Now, Holliday had run White, who's a bartender out of Dodge, uh, and told him that if he ever saw him again, he would kill him. Well, Holliday sees White again, and he's uh, attending bar at the Plaza Hotel Saloon in Las Vegas' old town. And a guy named Miguel Antonio Otero, he ended up later becoming the governor of New Mexico. But Miguel told the story because he was witness to it. And he straight up says that, um, you know, the two men faced each other, began shooting. Um, they, sh they shoot and shoot with no one scoring a hit. Finally, Charlie White is down. What happened was, you know, they had had an argument previously uh, Doc straight up told him, if I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. So he sees him in the saloon. He leaves to go get his gun, comes back. Doc Holliday literally just starts shooting blindly over the bar. Um, and what he does is he, he shoots White in the head, but it wasn't a full shot. It actually just grazed his skull a little bit. So it really just stunned White. Uh, didn't really, you know, do too much damage. 
There is, again, historians say, quote, there is no newspaper account or court records um, were found to verify such a gunfight ever took place. But here's the deal. You have an eyewitness who later became governor um, who says, yeah, I saw the whole damn thing happen. Like, this is how it happened. So, I mean, you can kind of take that as you will. Now, while they did get in the New Mexico Territory, Doc opened a dental practice again and continued gambling as well. The winter was really unseasonably cold that year. Business was really slow. Um, and luck would have it that the New Mexico Territorial Legislature passed a bill banning gambling within the territory. And uh, Doc said, fuck this. I'm, you know, about done. And on March 8th, 1879 holiday was indicted again for keeping a gaming table he was fined 25 dollars uh the ban combined with the with the you know the the ban on gambling the fine he keeps getting indicted on gambling charges you got extreme low temperatures pretty much persuades him to return to dodge city for for just a few months so on july 20th 1879 there's a lot of accounts of Doc Holliday killing a man named Mike Gordon. A coroner's inquest held the day that Gordon was killed. They made no mention of Doc Holliday. It was ruled that the fatal gunshot wound to Gordon's chest was inflicted by some person unknown to that jury. Um, the newspaper at the time expanded on the killings for days without a single mention of Holliday. Um, who actually at this time had his own saloon. He had bought his own saloon on uh, Center Street. Now, again, we bring up Bat Masterson, who adds to it. He pretty much uh, gave he gave an interview to the Arizona Weekly Citizen on August 14, 1886. He was the one who named Holiday as Gordon's killer, and even threw in uh, a Mexican that Doc was supposed to have shot when the Mexican was pissed about Doc shooting Gordon. So basically, Bat Masterson says, towards the end of Doc's life, and, you know, 1886, he's like, yeah, you know, Holiday fucking shoots this guy named Gordon, because I remember, you know, back in 1879 when it happened, you know, they never found him guilty, and then this Mexican gets pissed because he killed Gordon, so Doc kills him too, but... Like I had said, you know, Bat Masterson, he was kind of prone to uh, exaggerate facts and making his own life story, like, a lot more colorful. And he did that same shit with Holiday too, you know. He fucking made him look bad. He, he put a lot of words into his mouth. He basically created all these events that uh, Holiday did as well. So, by September of 1879, man... Um, Doc Holliday has pretty much developed an extreme reputation for his skill with a gun as well as with gambling and cards. And just to keep this noteworthy because I just fucked you guys with a lot of information and part two is going to have more information. I'm going to go ahead and cut this episode off now. Part two, I will uh, do some reviews. Um, and if you're still listening, I will say this. I will do a bonus episode on Wyatt Earp if I get 10 iTunes reviews. Now, why this is going to be interesting is because while researching Doc Holliday, I got to learn a lot about Wyatt Earp. Um, Wyatt Earp is not the person that most people think he is. 
And I think you would be really interested to hear, you know, what I would have to say about him. So 10 iTunes reviews. I'll do a bonus episode on Wyatt Earp. Other than that, see you folks on the flip side.